You're listening to the micro version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. So on Friday morning, June 26th, when I woke up, uh, I was married to my husband, Terry, in Washington. And if we wanted to be single, if I did not want to be married, I had to drive to Nebraska to become a single man again. By Friday afternoon, I had to go farther to be a single man again. The United States Supreme Court, in a decision authored by Justice Anthony Kennedy, who is going to go down in history as a hero to the LGBT civil equality movement, decided that the Constitution did indeed guarantee, wrote that the Constitution did indeed guarantee two same-sex couples under equal protections grounds the right to marry. And kablooey, the world blew up and I was suddenly a married man in all 50 states and same-sex couples could get married in all 50 states. It was already legal in 37. There were just 13 holdouts and they all got marriage equality on June 26th, or just marriage. We can just call it marriage now. But Friday afternoon, I got on an airplane and I flew to Australia. I was going to Melbourne in perhaps the worst timed speaking gig I have ever agreed to do, a gig that I uh, very much enjoyed. I spoke to a bunch of doctors in Melbourne, Australia, and I went to talk to doctors about why so many of their patients are afraid to talk to them about their sex lives. And it was a great gig, but I agreed to it about a year and a half ago, and I was stuck. I couldn't get out of it on June 26th, 2015, when I wanted to do nothing more than lay in bed with my husband in all 50 states, when I wanted to consummate that new deal 50 times, once for you, Alabama, once for you, Texas, once for you, New Hampshire, I had to get on an airplane and fly to Australia and be a single man. And the other thing I wanted to do besides symbolically consummate my marriage in all 50 states, I wanted to come into this office and record sort of a celebratory podcasty rant about what we had achieved, about the, the tremendous change. Andrew Sullivan wrote uh, – Andrew Sullivan, of course, has been a champion of marriage equality for 30 years. He wrote a really groundbreaking essay in The New Republic uh, many, many, many years ago, decades ago. Uh, he said on his blog, he revived the dish, his blog that he retired from. He shut down the dish. He came back to the dish for one day to write a post. And he began that post by saying, as Gandhi never quite said, there's this famous quote that people attribute to Gandhi that he never really quite said. But as Gandhi never quite said, first they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. And there has never been a better example of that not quite Gandhi quote I think in the history of American politics than this. When people first started agitating for rights for same-sex couples to marry, people laughed. And not just straight people. Queer organizations. You know, there's this myth now among the sort of sex radical far lefty queer left, the Tumblr kids, that marriage equality was this conspiracy on the behalf of mainstream gay rights organizations that are in the pocket of wealthy gay white men to direct all the energy of the gay liberation movement that had been focused on securing the right of everyone to suck a million dicks to 
getting these marriage rights and military service. And that just was not true. Marriage was same-sex marriage. The press for it was a grassroots movement. And the pioneers in that movement, the Andrew Sullivans, the Roberta Kaplans, the Mary Bonotos, and primarily, and at the top of the pile, the Evan Wolfsons and the individual couples who sued in Hawaii and Massachusetts, they did not have the backing of mainstream queer rights organizations. They were out there on a limb on their own. The first couples that sued, same-sex couples that sued for the right to marry in Hawaii, a decision that came down from the Hawaiian Supreme Court in 1993 that really kick-started the movement and the pushback. Hawaii Supreme Court in 1993 ruled that same-sex couples had a right to marry and that's when we got the Defense of Marriage Act. That's when they began to fight. Prior to that win, they were laughing at us. And by they, I mean not just straight people who oppose marriage equality, but also queer people who oppose marriage equality. And that couple that filed that suit, those couples in Hawaii, they had to hire a straight lawyer. They couldn't find a lawyer at a queer rights group that would represent them in that fight. It was a grassroots movement. And they laughed and we fought and we argued and we won. And I wanted to be here so badly not just in this room talking to you guys, but in the streets at the pride parade. I missed the pride parade on what was probably the most celebratory pride parade ever. But when I got to Australia, I had three days in Melbourne in a hotel room all by myself, really lovely hotel room all by myself. And a weird thing happened. I didn't jump on my blog. I didn't write a lot of posts. I didn't do a lot of tweeting. I went to a lot of movies I had nothing to do for three days except try to adjust my clock. So I was awake to give a speech on the Tuesday morning when I was there. So I found myself wandering around downtown Melbourne by myself, all alone, a single man, an unmarried person temporarily and again, come the fuck on Australia, two nations in the English speaking world in the Anglosphere, just two do not have marriage equality, Northern Ireland, the Republic of and Australia. Come on, Australia. Do you really want to be fucking last? Come on, Tony Abbott. And I just, I felt done. Done with this issue. We have been making this argument for our civil equality, for our right to marry for 25, 30 years. I have been making that argument also. I wrote a book called The Commitment about marriage. I wrote op-eds for the New York Times. I stumped for it in my columns and at my newspaper, The Stranger in Seattle. We would do issues dedicated to marriage equality and people would laugh at us. People would think we were ridiculous. We would pin every single candidate who came into our offices at our newspaper and ask for endorsement. We would pin them down on marriage. We would demand – if they were running for the sewer control board, if they were running for city council, for school board, even if it was completely irrelevant to the race, we made them tell us where they stood. Because we wanted to hold them to it if they ran for higher office ever. We fought and fought and fought and fought and said and said and said and said. We wrote the books. We made the arguments. We wrote the op-eds. We ran our mouths on TV. Evan and Andrew and Mary and Roberta and EJ Grapp. We all did it. Jonathan Roche. We all did it. John Corvino. We made the arguments. We had the debates. One of them in my goddamn dining room with Brian goddamn Brown. And I was just sitting in Australia thinking, I have nothing left to say about this. I'm, I'm done. And then when I got home from Australia and got on Twitter 
There's my old friend, Peter Laba Barra from Stop Homosexuality International, baiting me on Twitter into an argument about marriage equality. And there's Ben fucking Shapiro, the right-wing scold and an idiot, trying to bait me into an argument about marriage equality. And I just thought, I don't have to argue with these motherfuckers anymore on this. We have to defend this right. There will be an attempt to take marriage back just as there have been attempts to roll back voting rights and roll back abortion rights. We will have to defend this. But they've lost the argument at every level, public opinion, Supreme Court, and everything in between. They've lost the argument and we don't – I don't have to talk to Peter LaBibera anymore. I don't have to entertain Ben Shapiro's idiotic arguments anymore. They can go fuck themselves and I can – Talk to you guys. We can talk about sex. We can talk about your problems. We can talk about other stuff that matters. We can talk about rights for trans people. We can talk about protecting LGBT youth. We can talk about services for LGBT elders. Evan Wolfson had a great op-ed in the New York Times after the victory laying out the other things that need to happen for LGBT people in this country before we can achieve true equality, including the passage of the Employment Non-Discrimination Act. Right now, you can get gay married in Alabama on Sunday and gay fired in Alabama on Monday when your employer finds out that you're queer. That's untenable. That's got to change. And it will change because we're going to stay in this fight. But we're going to move on to the other stuff that we want to win, the other stuff that we're going to argue for, the other victories that we are going to have. And we don't have to play in Brian Brown's sandbox anymore. We don't have to play in Peter LaBibera's sandbox or ben shapiro's sandbox anymore it's over assholes and you lost and we as a movement are doing what movements do we have secured a victory and we are moving on in an effort to secure future victories and you clowns you can fuck yourselves when i opened my computer i kept going back to kennedy's decision i kept rereading kennedy's decision it was almost as if I thought if I go back to the decision, it's going to disappear. It's going to evaporate. It's not going to be there. It's not going to be what I thought it was, that it was kind of a dream. And I kept rereading it to assure myself that, no, this is really what he said. This is really what happened on Friday morning as I was running to the airport. And I'm not going to read huge chunks of it to you, but I am going to read to you the last paragraph, which is going to be, I think, incorporated into many, many wedding ceremonies, both straight and gay, going forward. And it is beautiful. And I want to share it with you, but I do think that you should jump online and read the entire decision. As I have several times now, you should read the entire decision. It is beautiful. And it is the product of so much effort, energy, activism, blood, sweat, and tears. And I just want the chance to read it aloud myself. No union is more profound than marriage, for it embodies the highest ideals of love, fidelity, devotion, sacrifice, and family. In forming a marital union, two people become something greater than they once were. As some of the petitioners in these cases demonstrate, marriage embodies a love that may endure even past death. It would misunderstand these men and women to say they disrespect the idea of marriage. Their plea is that they do respect it, respect it so deeply that they seek to find its fulfillment for themselves. Their hope is not to be condemned to live in loneliness, excluded from one of civilization's oldest institutions. They ask for equal dignity in the eyes of the law. The Constitution grants them that right. It is so ordered. Those are the four words that when I read them, 
kind of break my heart. It is so ordered because ordered has more than one meaning. Queer people, gay people, lesbian people, bi people, what had we been labeled for so long? Disordered. In a way you can read, it is so ordered as the judgment of the court ordering the 50 states to recognize same-sex marriage, to grant marriage licenses to same-sex couples, to recognize the validity of same-sex marriages performed in other states. They made that order. But also, in a way, it kind of means, or to me it means, to me it resonates with that insult, disordered. When I see those four words, it is so ordered. I see generations of gays and lesbians and bi people who came before who are not here to savor this victory, whose lives were destroyed by that disordered label. There's no retroactive justice that can come to them. But the court and the culture and the public are recognizing that same-sex couples, that gay people, that gay love, lesbian love, is ordered. It is the opposite of disordered. It is healthy. It is good. It is equal to the love that straight people can and do feel for each other. It is ordered. It is so ordered. Anyway, I'm glad to be back. Here we are. Your calls after this. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. Try Squarespace at squarespace.com and enter offer code SAVAGE at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace, build it beautiful. This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 150,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash savage. Hi, Dan. My question is about why once a guy starts talking to me at a bar or at a party or like in a class, whatever, in whatever social study, why after they start talking to me is it that like it never gets further than that? So what normally happens is that I go to a party or whatever and um, here's a perfect example. I went to a party with a friend and as we're walking in, this guy like shouts across the room like, hey, who's your friend? Introduce us. And either he's like a really friendly guy or he finds me attractive. And so I feel like I have that part down that like I can attract the other person because you know, I'm like, <laughs> this sounds so funny, but like I'm physically appealing to another person. But then once they start talking to me, it's like, there's no interest whatsoever after that. So with this particular person, you know, they shouted across the party, hey, introduce us. So I introduce myself and I tell the guy, yeah, um, I'm attending college right now. I just got out of the military, blah, blah, blah. What do you do? And I make sure always to ask like the other person, well, what do you do? And I try to be really interested because I am. So I try to show how interested I am. But for some reason, and this isn't the first time it's happened, but it happens a lot where like at first the guy seems really excited to talk to me. And I think it's mostly because they find me attractive. But then the conversation just like, it just tanks. And I've talked to like family, of course, and like, 
I talked to my grandma about it and she was like, well, are you over talking this person? And I was like, no, 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 no. I, you know, I give them a chance to talk and I don't interrupt. And my grandma's like, no, 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 you talk too much. And I think that could possibly be the issue. But, um, but yeah, I'm just curious, could it be something else? Could it be the fact that like, I've done a lot of things in my life already. I'm only 26 and I've been in the military. I'm working on my bachelor's degree. I have plans to get my master's. Um, I have like the next 10 years planned out because that's just how I am. But yeah, I was just curious if you had any insight as to why this might be happening a lot. I have it on good authority that horny straight guys will fuck annoying girls that they think are hot. So if they think you're hot enough to shout across the room to you and to finagle an introduction, yeah, maybe you are doing something wrong during that initial conversation. Maybe you are rattling on about yourself in a way that makes the other person think twice about sticking their dick in you. Maybe you come across not as driven but as crazy. It's wonderful that you have the next 10 years of your life plotted out, but it is going to be a turnoff if you walk people through the next 10 years of your life in the first 10 minutes that you interact with them. You need to listen to grandma, I think. Your friends and, and people who are with you in the room, when these things happen, when it goes down, they're in a much better position to tell you what you might be doing wrong. And maybe it's not how you talk. Maybe it is just that you're a little older, you're getting your bachelor's degree, you, you're much more experienced, you've seen things and done things that the guys that you're meeting who may be younger and less experienced than you are have not and they're just intimidated and bolting and you should go fuck some graduate students, right? Maybe that's the solution or maybe you have halitosis or maybe you say or do something in the moment that's a turnoff. Ask friends to observe. Do a little field study, a little sociology. Go to a party Ask your friend to be Jane Goodall and you're going to be the chimp. And when the other chimp approaches you, you ask your friend to observe. And then if that other chimp wanders off, seems very interested at first and then wanders off, you turn to your Jane Goodall friend and you say, tell this chimp what this chimp did wrong. And invite them to be brutally honest. Unless you're inviting me to tag along with you on the next kegger at your college, uh, asking me isn't the best route to an answer that might be useful. Ask your friends. Hi, Dan. I'm a late 20s lesbian in a super awesome relationship, and I'm engaged to a lady who is my closest to number one I'll ever get. She's smart and hilarious and super supportive, and we're both totally GGG and completely in love. It feels like it should be perfect, but I still get distracted by desires for other people. To be a little bit more specific, I have the occasional sexual attraction to men. It's never other women, but just men, older men in particular. And it would be really easy for me to find a guy to fuck on the side, but I have no idea how to bring this up to my fiancé. She's very monogamous, and although I wouldn't call her heterophobic or anything like that, I know for sure she would be uncomfortable with the idea of me fucking guys. There would be no risk of me developing feelings for these hypothetical fuck buddies because I'm in love with my partner and I'm just not emotionally attracted to men. It would be purely sexual and just for fun. I don't 
even want to fuck guys all the time. I just want an occasional free pass to meet a dude, tell him the truth that I'm gay and engaged, and then fuck his brains out, and then go home to my wonderful future life. Uh, what would be the best way to bring this up without making my fiancé feel insecure or hurt or betrayed? Is it inevitable that she would feel those things or not? I mean, should I maybe keep the desires at bay until we've been married for a while and then suggest it? She's kind of open to the idea of having threesomes with other women, uh, which is awesome, but we haven't really explored that side of our sexual relationship yet. We've just been doing, you know, our thing together. Yeah, the best strategy here is to not share this information about your sexuality with the woman that you love and you are about to marry, who's about to make a lifetime commitment to you, and then to wait till after you're married for a while, maybe after you've had a couple of kids, and then drop this bomb on her. Yeah, she's not going to feel betrayed then. You want to control for feelings of betrayal? Here's how you roll this out. Earlier. Years ago, when you met, you rolled this shit out. You have presented yourself on this call as a gay woman. It sounds like you're a bi woman. You are bisexual but homoamorous, right? You are in love with women. You don't feel that emotional connection with men. But you like to fuck guys every once in a while. The woman who is about to marry you has a right to know that, particularly if that's something that you feel for your own sense of fulfillment – or for your own not going out of your mind, that's something you're going to have to act on every once in a while. That's something that you needed to disclose before the engagement. I don't think that relationships are depositions. I don't think you have to answer every question. I don't think you have to disclose every single fact about yourself. There are some things that we protect our partners from, some truths that are that would squick them out or are – that are really trivial but perhaps problematic and you're allowed to you're allowed to stuff the occasional piece of shit down the memory hole without having to throw it on the table, right? So long as it's not ever going to have an impact on your relationship or your partner, but this isn't of that kind. This is going to have an impact on your partner. An emotional impact. There are sexual risks built into this for your partner that she has a right to consent to from an informed place, if you go out there and fuck some other guys, rando guys, you are at higher risk of contracting a sexually transmitted infection because you have more partners than just her. And so if that's what she's signing up for, she has to actively, knowingly, from an informed place, sign up for that. So disclose this. And who knows? Maybe your partner has hidden depths. Maybe your partner feels the same way you do. Maybe your partner is like so many of those lesbians who've called my show to tell me that they're sitting on dicks, right? They get me in trouble when I run those calls with lesbians who don't sit on dicks. Maybe she is sitting on the same secret and can't bring herself to tell you because you're a gay lady. She proposed to a gay lady and she's presented herself as a gay lady. And how does she unpack this desire every once in a while for dick to you? Better to risk losing this relationship through honesty and disclosing this very pertinent information that your partner has a right to know before marriage, better to risk losing it than to withhold this information and explode your relationship at some point down the road. 
If you disclose this now, it might not be a problem. Or maybe it could be a problem that you could work through. Maybe allowing you to run off and sit on a dick every once in a while is a price of admission that your fiancé is willing to pay to have you in her life and you guys can have a knockdown, drag out, fight about that and work it out and come to terms and everything will be rosy. Or maybe she'll be like, oh, really? Me too. Maybe we should have occasional three-ways with dudes. And you guys will be like, Yahtzee. Or maybe she's wrong for you and you're wrong for her. And the time to determine that is now before you allow her to say I do to you under assumptions that you know to be false. Right now she assumes that you are a lesbian like her. She assumes that you don't need dick any more than she needs it. And we are now assuming, I am assuming, that she is a lesbian who doesn't want dick at all. And that's not true. And it is not fair of you to allow her to go forward with those false assumptions. It is misleading. It is emotionally abusive. It is dishonest. So go tell your fiancé what you've told us and let the chips fall where they may. It may mean the end of this relationship may take this relationship to a more honest place. It may mean you wind up in a relationship down the road with someone who would make a better partner for you than she would, if indeed this is a deal breaker. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the smart way to build a website, blog, or online store. Let's face it, if you want to be taken seriously, whether you run a small business or just want to blog about your life or family or whatever, you have to have a nice-looking website. And it's not easy to crank one out unless you have serious skills. But with Squarespace, your site will look professionally designed, regardless of skill level, no coding required. They have intuitive and easy-to-use tools, great customer support, and state-of-the-art technology to ensure security and stability. Why mess around, right? It starts at $8 a month. You get a free domain name if you sign up for a year. Start your free trial today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code SAVAGE to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Hi, Dan. I am a 40-year-old single female calling about my relationship with my 16-year-old son. We practiced in our home having a very open and honest family relationship. Also to the point that we have told him that his uncle was arrested for uh, having gotten a DUI. We were honest about that. We were honest that his aunt died because of her addiction to alcohol and its impact on her liver. The reason that I'm calling is related to how honest to be about my own childhood sexual abuse at the hands of my mother. I don't have an adult relationship with my mother and neither do my children. I've told the kids that my mom is quote-unquote a jerk. I've told them that she's quite the Republican and that she's racist, all of which are true. But the number one reason why I don't have a relationship with her is because of the sexual abuse and to protect my children. Now that my son is in a serious relationship, I want to start having conversations with him about consent as it relates to his relationship, and I'd like your opinion on when and if it's appropriate for me to disclose my own personal story, obviously being appropriate, and could that help him 
or is it too much information? Your history of sexual abuse at the hands of your toxic mother, and my heart goes out to you, is irrelevant to the fact that your son is now dating. It is irrelevant to the topic of consent. You can have a conversation with your kid. We should all be having conversations with our kids about consent and what it is and what it isn't and what active, enthusiastic consent means and how to obtain consent and how to give consent. That's a huge part of sex education that we don't go into because having those conversations about consent means talking to your kids about how you talk someone into having sex with you or how you allow yourself to be asked to have sex with somebody else. It's really about saying yes. And so much sex ed is predicated on trying to get kids to say no. And a conversation about consent is a conversation about yes. And you can have that conversation with your kid without going into your family history, which is not to say you shouldn't disclose this fact about your relationship with your toxic, shitty mother that you rightly protected your kids from cut out of your life and may have rescued your kids from abuse at her hands. You cut that chain of abuse, that cycle of abuse, right? And you deserve ribbons for that and credit for that. And you can have absolutely a conversation with your son about that, but that is a separate conversation than the conversation about consent. Yes, your ability to consent was clearly violated if you were abused by a parent as a child. There's no consent there. Consent cannot be granted in that circumstance. And that's easy, I think, for your son to understand. That kind of violation is – when we discuss consent, it is easy and it's obvious. There's no consent there when a child is raped, right? So – the conversation that you want to have with your son about consent, the example of the violation that you experienced at the hands of your mother is not really relevant. It's not a really good example to your son. You want him thinking proactively about consent and what it is and how it's granted. Unless your son is thinking about having sex with children, which he isn't, then this doesn't tie in. You need to be having conversations with your son about much more ambiguous situations where he may think he has consent but he doesn't, where if, you know somebody not objecting to whatever it is you're doing is not someone consenting to what it is you're doing and you can't make those kinds of assumptions, particularly if he's a young straight boy and girls are socialized not to say no to guys and to be deferential. And so it is on him to be very solicitous of the consent of any girl that he's going to bed with because he should know that there are certain cultural settings, a certain zap that's been placed on her head that may make it difficult for her to actively say no to him. So he needs to actively solicit a yes from her. And absent that yes, he shouldn't proceed with whatever he's doing. That's the conversation about consent you need to have with your son. You can have a conversation about the fact that in addition to all the other reasons that he hasn't been allowed to have a relationship with his grandmother, there is also this. Maybe it will help him not understand consent better because, again, the consent issue in that situation is obvious. But to understand you better and to understand who you are and to understand the emotional dynamics in his family 
to have a better understanding of why he hasn't been allowed to have a relationship with his grandparent. And there are plenty of people out there who have shitty grandparents who say racist things and aren't very nice who are still allowed to have relationships with those grandparents. He may have friends who have shitty racist grandparents who have relationships with their grandparents. He may feel cheated that whatever his grandmother's flaws are, including racism, which he can challenge or overlook or set aside or put up with, he hasn't been allowed to have a relationship with her. Knowing this may be the missing piece that helps him understand and and be at peace with the decision you made to protect him and your other children from her. And you absolutely, I think at age 16, 17, 18, kids are old enough to hear this, to know about this. You can share that, but it's a separate conversation. Have a conversation with your son about consent, what it is, what it looks like, how to get it, how to give it. And then at another time, when you want to open up to your son about this painful fact about your upbringing, about your relationship with your mother, about your having been violated by your mother and the steps you took to protect your kids from your mother, have that conversation separately. This podcast is brought to you by audible.com, a leading provider of audiobooks with more than 150,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. Audiobooks are great to listen to when you're driving, stuck in traffic, or doing chores around the house. For listeners of this podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out their service. One audiobook to consider is Drugged, The Science and Culture Behind Psychotropic Drugs by Richard Miller, narrated by Roger Clark. It is a history of psychotropic drugs, of all the drugs we've taken and tried to bend our brains, and includes fun facts like antidepressant drugs evolved from rocket fuel. I didn't know that. And Prozac can be prescribed to unhappy cats. Learn that and other fascinating things about psychotropic drugs as you listen to Drugged, the science and culture behind psychotropic drugs by Richard Miller, which you can listen to for free when you try out audible.com's service. For that free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash savage. That's audiblepodcast.com slash savage. Hi, Dan. I am a 27-year-old female living on the East Coast. And I had a question for you about my boyfriend. We met on a dating site and we've been together for six months now. The relationship's amazing. Um, We are a little long distance. I like to call it short distance relationship because it's just two hours. Um, Enough to where um, we don't see each other every day, but we usually see each other once a week to once every two weeks. Sex has been really, really good. I'd say up until probably the last two to four weeks. Um, And I started to notice that it was being a little forced. So, of course, I'm a girl. And number one thought in my head is that something's wrong with me and he's not attracted to me. So I did confront him about it. And I just asked him, I said, you know, I just feel like this, uh, the sex has been a little forced here lately. And I was curious to see if it was something, you know, about me and you weren't attracted to me anymore or anything like that. And he said, no, definitely not. And um, that he was still attracted to me. He just said it has been a little forced and he doesn't know why. He said that uh, the only thing he can think of is that he has been working out more lately. He started working out a lot harder probably the last four to six weeks, and he thinks that could possibly have something to do with it. 
Um, so I didn't know if you had any advice or if you knew anything about working out, having effect on sex or anything like that. The conventional wisdom, which is backed up by research and data, is that exercise revs up libidos, that if you're exercising regularly, if you're working out, that you're going to generally be hornier, not less horny. I'm not saying your boyfriend is lying to you. Your boyfriend may not understand what's up with his libido. Sometimes the tide goes out and people don't understand why and they will look around in their lives for whatever it is that they're doing differently and think maybe that's the explanation. Maybe that's the explanation. So he could have seized on this change that he's made, that he's exercising more and looked at it and said maybe it's this because this is the only thing I'm doing differently. But the conventional wisdom backed up by research and data – tells us that it's probably not that. Probably not the exercise, probably something else. We don't know what that something else is. But if it six months into a relationship, the sex is dying and not great, particularly if you're long distance and absence makes the heart grow fonder, another bit of conventional wisdom backed up by research and data, when you are getting together, he's not sort of pumped and excited to see you you know, another explanation could be that he has lost interest, but he likes you and doesn't want to hurt you. And so he's doing that stupid young thing of just letting the relationship go and go and go and letting you wonder what could possibly be wrong and reassuring you that nothing's wrong when he knows something's wrong, but he doesn't want to say it because he doesn't want to hurt your feelings. So he's going to drag this out and in the end hurt your feelings more. Sometimes you have to look at what people are doing and how they're treating you to figure out how they actually feel. Because not everybody is good at saying how they feel. If I were in your shoes and I was with somebody for six months and the sex was waning and there was no explanation, I would end it. I would look at that and say there's something happening here that indicates that this is wrapping up, that your interest in me has reached its terminus. And if I were in your shoes, caller, I would pull the plug myself. Save the two-hour drive. Hey, everybody. As you listeners to the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast know, we keep this version of the Savage Lovecast free by making you listen to delicious ads. You get to listen to a few ads every week, and that keeps the show free for you guys who don't want to subscribe to the Magnum. Of course, advertisers, they want to know who the listeners to various shows are so they can match the right ads with the right shows. And podcasting is a new medium and advertisers who support podcasts and support podcasting are still trying to figure out how exactly this works and who exactly you guys out there in podcast listener land are. And it would be a favor to us and really a way to support podcasting in this podcast if you would agree to take this online survey. Please go to podsurvey.com slash savage and fill it out. It takes about five minutes. It's completely anonymous. And when you're finished, you can enter your email for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. They'll give away one gift card per month, so you've got a real shot. Better than the lottery. Mostly this will help us out a lot and the medium out and other podcasts and allow us to keep this show coming to you for free. So – as a personal favor to me and all other podcasters out there as we figure this shit out, please go to podsurvey.com. That's P-O-D-S-U-R-V-E-Y dot com slash savage and take the survey. Thanks a ton. Back to your calls. Hi, 
Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. Um, I am a 29-year-old bi lady living in the Northeast. I have a wonderful relationship going with a wonderful dude, and um, we're very open and honest about everything, which is great. He knows about my crazy exes. I know about his crazy family. He knows about my crazy family, which is all great. But there's one thing that I haven't figured out how to tell him yet, um, which is that I was molested when I was 22 by a family friend. And in the past, I've had uh, flashbacks sometimes when a man touches my breasts. And this hasn't happened yet with this wonderful, wonderful guy, but it has with other men. And I'm wondering when to tell him about this horrible thing that happened because I don't want to freak him out. It, it freaks out every, every time I, I tell someone it freaks them out either because they want to go kill the bastard or because they, uh, they see me physically freak out, start shaking. So any advice that you would have, I, I want to continue this open, honest, loving relationship and I just don't want to freak him out. If most of your body is a wonderland, but a small part of your body is a minefield, the guys you date have a right to know, not a right to know that. It would be in the, your best interest, their best interest, the best interest of the relationship if you disclose that. Because the last thing somebody who likes you and cares about you and may even love you wants to do is trigger you, is to accidentally traumatize you because they didn't have the info that they needed. Which is not to say that he's not allowed to touch your breasts, but if potentially touching your breasts, taking his pleasure from your breasts could throw you back into a, an ugly place, it could traumatize him to do that to you accidentally, unknowingly. So I do think you have – I don't want to say an obligation because I don't want to like throw obligations at people who have suffered abuse, right? You, you have – it would be in your best interest, the best interest of your relationship to let him know that this is potentially triggering for you to be touched in this particular way and to, to frame it that this doesn't always happen. It hasn't happened yet. It may never happen. If it happens once, it doesn't mean you can't touch my breasts in the future. It's just if it happens, if I'm thrown back, you know, we just need to put things on hold and go have ice cream and watch a couple episodes of Orange is the New Black and then try it again. Right, We just need to like let me clear my head. And then if it does happen, he is likelier to react in the way I think you would want a guy to react. Not as if he's done something wrong but something wrong was done to you and he's there to help you deal with the fallout. That he's going to be compassionate and understanding and sensitive at that moment if the sex you're having with him pulls you out and flips you out freaks you out. You say in the past when you've had these conversations with previous guys that they've had this gorilla guy reaction, want to go beat the guy up, want to go attack the guy and also very freaked out by the story itself. And you don't share the details with us, but the story itself is angering and, and upsetting. So you don't have to give all the details. It's a new relationship. You can mention that 
as you did with us, the bare outlines, you were molested at 22, family friend, touched your breasts in such a way that every once in a great while when someone touches your breasts, you kind of flash back on that moment and it's unpleasant. That's all you got to say. And there's not detail in there that is freaking me out. It's just very matter-of-fact bare outlines. And so you can matter-of-fact bare outline it for this guy. And if he presses you for details and you know from previous interactions with other guys that the details crank them up in a way that damages the relationship and this abuse in your past shouldn't cost you new relationships going into your future, withhold those details. Say, you know, I don't want to go into it right now. It was it was what it was. It was unpleasant. And, you know, we don't need to unpack every beat. We don't need to unpack every moment. Family friend abused me. I was 22. I'm fine. It's over. There's this one little after effect vestige of the abuse, this, this, this fallout, this thing that happens every once in a while. That's all you need to know. And then you have a right to keep the rest of it to yourself. You have a right to not disclose everything to the new guy you're dating, just like you didn't disclose everything to us. Hi, Dan. I'm calling with a comment for the woman who loves to date damaged men. Um, I just wanted to say that often when women seek out damaged men in relationships like that, um, it's kind of the cliche, but of course, like most cliches, it has truth to it. Um, they're usually trying to act out something from their childhood that is unresolved. Um, I know this from personal experience because for years I sought out damage men to date. And it took one totally destroying me for me to get myself to therapy and realize that there was a lot more going on than just the rush of good feelings that comes from helping somebody. Hi, Dan and Tech at Rescue. This is a comment for the caller in episode 453 who is experiencing low sex drive during pregnancy. Uh, there's a huge push to talk about the pelvic floor rehabilitation, but some women experience such a huge drop in estrogen when breastfeeding that they can feel just as much pain during sex due to that alone. Before my pregnancy, I was basically the horniest woman alive. I loved sex and I watched porn daily. And after pregnancy and starting to breastfeed, I felt almost asexual. Uh, I would see people kissing on TV. It would disgust me. I would try to have sex. It felt like I had a burning desert between my legs. Uh, I had to wait almost 14 months after birth for my period to return, and that was the first time I felt almost normal again. It had nothing to do with my pelvic floor. My OBGYN even remarked that my insides looked like I never even had a baby. <clears throat> so ladies without pelvic floor issues, if you're breastfeeding, and especially if you don't have your period back yet and feel like sex is disgusting, don't worry. I'm now 17 months post-birth, and I'm catching up on all the sex and porn I missed. Hey, Dan, 24 from the South, lesbian. Uh, I was just calling to tell you about my Friday because it was seriously one of the best days of my life. When the court ruling came down, I decided to kind of go public with uh, my sexuality because I hadn't yet and um, I knew people would react but I didn't know they would react so well. Probably it was the best day of my life. My family threw me a big party and rented a private room. My friends took me out drinking. Uh, the night ended with me, me really drunk running in circles, screaming equality in a gay bar parking lot. Uh, dancing with my friends in the range. Friday was great. Speaking to your past self on the podcast last week. It was a great day. 
And we're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and Nancy and the tech savvy at-risk youth. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. 